agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katken. Ken, welcome to The Politics Guys. Thanks, Trey. It's great to be back. Well, you know, this week we're doing things a heck of a lot different, so I'm going to set some things up because... To begin with, Ken, you know, right now it's Wednesday, June 29th, which that's really bizarre because it's a whole lot earlier than we normally uh, do the show. But for listeners, just so you understand what's going on, the reason for this is relatively simple. I've got to have a surgery, uh, my 11th, for fistulizing Crohn's disease uh, on Thursday. So as some uh, listeners might know, I've had a number of autoimmune diseases that have uh, uh, cropped up in my life, including total body alopecia. Uh, but the big one that has caused me some problems has always been fistulizing Crohn's. So things are a lot better, and I appreciate it that many of you have in the past reached out about that. Um, but as somebody who's chronically ill and disabled, uh, my idea of normal isn't necessarily what everybody else's is. Uh, and so this is normal, uh, but just not what I mean you might necessarily hope for overall. Uh, so anyway, because of that, we're recording the show uh, earlier than we normally would. We're going to be doing this again. We're doing this right now on Wednesday. So what we're going to do is going to look just a little bit than what we have done in other shows because this is a delayed show. We don't normally do delayed shows. So we are going to look at some new things. We're going to talk about the January 6 updates that happened at the beginning of this week. We're going to talk about the Kennedy case which is brand new to this week. But we're also going to go back and we're going to take a look at the Dobbs uh, case. We're going to take a look at the New York case on the Second Amendment. And we're going to speak into, and we're not going to talk over, but we're going to speak into what's already happened uh, with Mike and Jay. We thought it would be, these these are such big cases, we thought it would be worthwhile anyway to speak into them with four hosts rather than just having Mike and Jay do them. Uh, And so, again, when we're talking about these things, we're talking about January's uh, 8th, just remember that we're on a delay. We don't normally do that delay. Uh, And so this is Wednesday, June 29th. So things might be uh, a little bit different uh, at that point. So we're going to have a a brief break. And when we come back from that break, we're going to start with the January 6th updates. We're going to move from there to talking about the uh, Kennedy versus the Birmingham uh, School District. Then we're going to go over and talk about Dobbs and the Jackson Women's Health Association uh, and then the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Uh, And then we'll get some other things if we have time. But that's what we've got on the docket. So we'll be we're going to take a a brief break and we're going to come back and we're going to start by talking about the January 6th update. Ken, this past Tuesday, Cassidy Hutchinson testified before the January 6th committee. Now, Ms. Hutchinson, she was a top aide to the White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadow. Now, there's all kinds of things that have come out of the January 6th committee as a result of her uh, commentary. But one of the items that has, I think, brought on maybe some of the, the, the biggest attention uh, has been her secondhand account that Trump was not only angry about him not being able to go to the Capitol, but that maybe he, in fact, lunged for a steering wheel uh, to get it. And this has led to a little bit of its own drama behind the drama, as the Secret Service has contested, not that he was angry and wanted to go to the Capitol, but the, the kind of assaulting and or uh, attempting to grab a, a steering wheel to make the, uh, make, the, make the officer take him to the Capitol. So they're kind of asking to be included in what's happening in the January 6th committee and saying, hey, you can have any of the documents we wanted. Now, what nobody's having a dispute over is, of course, that Trump rage over it all, including, it sounds like, throwing his uh, food into the wall, a little bit like a toddler, uh, when he wasn't kind of getting his way. Additionally, the, the age shows that the aides knew of the risk of violence on January 6th in advance. And, and further, Trump, it sounds like, according to the, the accounts here, knew that people were armed. As a matter of fact, according to Hutchinson, and I think this is going to be one of the big things we'll talk about, his response was this, quote, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. 
take the mags away, end quote. In this case, uh, mags, he's not talking about magazines for weapons. Uh, he is talking about uh, requiring people to go through um, metal detectors effectively. Meanwhile, Trump on his social media account, Truth Social, has lashed back at all of these claims in his kind of typical fashion. There is a lot to chew on, and there's more there than even that I've just uh, uh, briefly outlined, Ken. What would you like to gravitate towards first? <laughs> it's, uh, it was, uh, you know, it has to be the most riveting uh, of the hearings yet, just in terms of the, 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 the just shock and, and maybe luridness of, of, of the stories being told. Um, I always think about things in, in, from a legal context, I guess, and I, uh, one thing I, I, I was thinking about this is uh, there's, there has been uh, up till now, I think, um, a lot of skepticism about uh, whether it would be possible to prosecute Trump for crimes. You know, I think people were operating on the assumption that, you know, all he did was give a speech. He's within his First Amendment rights to give a speech. Um, you know, if the people then march and attack the Capitol. Um, you know, well, he didn't attack the Capitol, so and he could say that's not what he intended. So I, I think there had seemingly been a lot of concerns that no, no, nothing that he had really done would be enough to constitute a crime. I, I definitely think yesterday's testimony changes that, that he he actually wanted to lead an armed mob to attack the Capitol and and tried uh, to, to, to bring violence upon the Capitol in, other, in order to interfere with the electoral vote count, which is a, a lawful function of government, and indeed in order to um, do a coup. Um, I, I think it, it now meets the definition of sedition, um, and he's, he's at um, really much greater legal peril than before of being criminally prosecuted for sedition. I'm glad you started there because one of the things that in my brain I had been wondering about was a, a, an adjacent question to that, which is, right, this testimony, it's powerful. It, I think it leads to a fuller picture. But of course, as you bring up, you're kind of looking at it through a legal mind, and I couldn't help but think about it in terms of that as well. And in this case, though, I think the unfortunate thing is, is while I think all of this is well and good fact-finding commission for this committee. It may be more difficult, and I was curious about your opinion on this, because most of what she's reporting isn't her reporting of what she was experiencing, but rather her reporting of what she was told of things that were happening and going on. So how might that play into you know, whether or not there could be further criminal uh, uh, case brought forward. Because I kept thinking, well, man, you know, because you, you, in general, you can't have hearsay when it comes to uh, um, cases. No, no, but I don't think that's a, a serious problem because the um, the um, witnesses who um, have been, um, say, flouting the January 6th committee or witnesses, um, including Ms. Hutchinson, including, for instance, the Secret Service drivers um, who will be direct witnesses to a lot of events, you know, they, they, they would um, they could be they could definitely be compelled to testify in a criminal trial. Anyone who has um, was a direct witness to events, you know, it, it, the, the, the biggest impediment wouldn't be that big. It would just be that for some of the um, co-conspirators, in order to elicit their testimony, they might have to be given um, uh, use of derivative use immunity so that um, by forcing them to testify, it would make it harder to prosecute them. Um, but, you know, everybody with relevant evidence could be forced to testify about it in a, in a sedition trial of this nature. What about in the case of the Secret Service here who's basically said, look, we're going to dispute part of, of this testimony already. And hey, why haven't you brought us to the January 6th committee? So could that be some of the reason we're not seeing behind? I mean, as a matter of fact, you know, why, why is Garland not doing what he's doing? Could it be that there, it's a little bit more complicated than, than what was portrayed yesterday? Yeah, well, I mean, if the, if the investigation shows that the facts portrayed yesterday are not accurate, um, then there wouldn't be a sedition prosecution. So I'm, I'm kind of going on the assumption that the story we heard yesterday was accurate in its essentials and that, and, 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 and that your question was about, you know, how could that be proved? And what I'm saying is if it's accurate in its essentials, 
it won't be hard to prove. Um, if if uh, okay. you know if 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 it wasn't accurate in its essentials, then um, then you know there, that it wouldn't there wouldn't be a basis for a, a sedition uh, prosecution unless you know unless there was some different basis for it. I guess so. So that's all I meant to say. I didn't mean to say that with only the testimony of Ms. Hutchinson, um, Trump could now be convicted of sedition. Oh, yeah. But 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 I meant to say that if the things she told are true in essence, um, then there's enough there. That as as evidence was introduced through witnesses with firsthand knowledge, uh, he could be um, convicted of sedition. What do you think the actual likelihood? So, I mean, you were kind of indicating you think that it's more likely now to happen. But of course, in this particular instance, this is one of those unique circumstances where you have both politics and the legal system. Uh, I don't want to say colliding, but they're interacting, certainly, when it comes to these kinds of decisions. Uh what do you think the likelihood is is that Garland really wants to step into this, especially given that we've had two and I recognize right that there is a fundamental difference between an impeachment uh, proceeding and a criminal legal trial, but there is of course the political considerations that are happening there. What do you think about as you start looking at it from both of those angles coming together? Yeah, I think there's no doubt that, you know, as recently as Monday, um, Merrick Garland's strong instinct was not to prosecute President Trump. You know, I, I think his his thinking was that it the, the evidence could be um, explained away, you know, that the people who are sympathetic to Trump um, would see that evidence in a, in a light favorable to Trump and that it would be hard to get a jury to convict and that a, a, a failed con- a failed attempt would be seen as, as a politicized Justice Department. And I think there's just a million reasons he didn't want to go forward with this. But I have to believe that he's reconsidering that now because, you know, again, if if the story that Ms. Hutchinson told is true, I do believe that that would be easy to get a conviction. And so the 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 idea that um you know it would be hard to convict Donald Trump of anything and and damaging to the justice department to try if they're going to fail um I, I think some of that is is a lot less true today than it was a couple days ago. I think now there's really an explanation of things that are just incontestably a crime. And so the 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 all that's left is to just kind of you know have an investigation and uh, uh, adduce the proof to prove out the crime. Now, you know, on the first-hand side of things, you know, w- one of the areas where she was is both temper tantrum moment, but also, uh, as she put it, around that 2 p.m. of that day when she's going into the into Meadows' office, or so her boss's office, to effectively say, "Look, we've we've got to talk with the president about what's going on. We've we've got to have something going on because in in her view, right, you've basically got a couple of groups." kind of competing inside of the Trump administration. You've got one group that wants some immediate action from Trump so that there is distance. You've got one group that wants to act, but they don't want to to make Trump angry. They want to kind of, you know, keep him even keeled or at least as even keeled as we can, given, again, the testimony that we were hearing. And then there's another group who kind of wanted to go the other way and say, look, we just got to deflect all of this. And in large part, in her words, kind of point fingers at Antifa. So in these moments where she's got the, the, you know, she is the person in the room. What did you think about those portions of her testimony? I, I found some of that to be maybe some of the, even the most compelling because again, she's talking in that first person point of view. Yeah. And it actually begins on January 5th because, um, she, she testified that she was, uh, in the room, um, you know, the night before January 6th when, um, uh, Trump instructed, uh, Mark Meadows, to be in touch with Roger Stone and Michael Flynn about what was going to happen on on January sixth, and and that um, uh, Stone in particular um, seems like the thing that he that he his role in this would have been that he was the conduit to the 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 domestic terrorist groups, the the Oath Keepers and the um, uh, Proud Boys, um, and so so she's able to say as an ordinary witness that that Trump was um, trying to, you know, keep his lines of communication directly open to those groups who were organizing to um, commit an attack on the Capitol, and that this was already in the works the night before. Um, And then, you know, again, I think she's also um, an ordinary witness um, to the business you talked about with the the mags, I, I think that means like magnetometer, but those are, as you said, yeah. metal detectors that, um, so that, so that when people are gathering 
on the on the on the um, ellipse where he was giving his outdoor speech, and you know, there's plenty of metal detectors there. Like people, it wasn't like the metal detectors were causing big delays that were keeping people out. the The problem is he perceived it was that the metal detectors were keeping out people who had guns and wanted to come in anyhow. And 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 that was the problem with them is that he wanted people there who were armed, and he wanted them there armed because he thought they wouldn't attack him and that he would like to lead an armed march on the Capitol. Um, you know, she, she was an ordinary witness to some of that. She, and, and other people mm-hmm. were too, of course. So, so um, yeah, and, and, you know, and she was an ordinary witness to um, efforts by some of the heroes of the story, like Northern Kentucky's own uh, Pat Cipollone, uh, to try to, you know, try to, try to stop all this. Now, Cipollone has not wanted to um, talk publicly, or I think even privately, to the January 6th committee. But if there was a, a criminal case, um, certainly he could be subpoenaed. And, um, you know, I don't think he's got any fear of incrimination, but certainly he could, you know, be given um, immunity from that. And, and then he would have to testify. So, um, so yeah, I think a lot of these particulars really show a lot of planning for an armed assault on the Capitol designed to disrupt the electoral vote count for the purpose of um, overthrowing the government. As a matter of fact, so let's go back to Cephalone because you know that's one of the other powerful points of her testimony. Uh, you know, a, a, according to her, uh, he says something needs to be done, or people are going to die, and the blood's going to be on your effing hands. And in response to this, what Meadows is saying is, "Look, you've heard it. You know what's going on." He thinks Mike, meaning Mike Pence, deserves it. So, in other words, not <laughs> only did, did I want him to have it, but then look. He, he, I mean, I, I want him to get hurt. I want, I want, it's not even an implication. I mean, you know, the, the, the straightforward purpose is to say, look, I want them to be down there. I want them, I want them to more than just scare him. I want them to get him. Yeah. And of course this, you know, besides how awful that is, the, the significance of that to the crime of sedition is that this would be in order to prevent Mike Pence from presiding over the electoral vote count, which is his constitutional responsibility, right? If he gets killed or maimed, then he, then he he won't be able to preside over the the electoral vote count, and so that will be a way of using violence to overthrow the government. Um, and uh, and so yeah, that that's a it's it's really you know it's very classic um, in terms of you couldn't have facts that better fit that crime of sedition. Yeah, I mean, even even close Trumpers who have talked with the January 6th committee. So, for example, you know, Lindsey Graham talked about uh, him just being unhinged at this juncture. Uh, you know, you, you couldn't get near him. Uh, so, obviously, you're saying you think that as of Tuesday, there's a higher likelihood uh, uh, that, that you're going to have a prosecution move forward. But what do yeah, you of, think of Trump? Any, and, and, and I, I think it switched from yeah. a, a negative, you know, from below 50-50 to above 50-50. I think that happened um, uh, on, on Tuesday. How does this may or may not interact with the with the upcoming likelihood of Trump running for the presidency uh, again, uh, specifically since, as we were talking about earlier, this interaction between the politics and the law of it? The, uh, having a ongoing inve- I mean, ongoing investigation of a candidate of this type would be unprecedented. Now, that's not to say that you, one not ought to do it, but it, w- it would certainly some unique political reality. So, you know, looking forward, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think if he's going to be indicted, he would be indicted, um, you know, in 2023, most likely. So that would mean it would happen um, before the beginning of the primary season in 2024. So um, if he's actually under indictment for this crime, I, I think it's not feasible that he could become the nominee. That doesn't mean he's not going to um, throw his hat in the ring. And he derives a lot of financial advantage from throwing his hat in the ring, even if he doesn't think he's going to be the nominee. But I, I think he um, I, I don't I don't see that there's a path for somebody who's under indictment for sedition um, to be able to win uh, a Republican primary. At least, at least in enough states to to actually become the nominee. So that leads to this next political question, and I've been thinking about this carefully as well. You know, you've got DeSantis in the wings, who's effectively the the Trump without the the uh, a lot of the baggage <laughs> of Trump. Yeah. I mean, to use that, you have others in the Republican wings, uh, some of which I would you know I would still um, policy wise disagree with deeply, uh, but. 
and then others who'd be closer. But be that as it may, point being is, is you got a lot of people. So at this juncture, I mean, this could be a positive for them. I mean, we keep one of the things I've continued to look at, and and I think sometimes you found me to be more maybe overly optimistic about, has been some Republicans beginning to in greater numbers. And by this, I mean, obviously, elite Republicans uh, peeling themselves away a little bit from Trump, finding some distance from Trump. Uh, I mean, this might accelerate that, especially if, as you think, that there's a higher likelihood uh, for an indictment. So might this start to change the calculus? I mean, because, for example, if I was DeSantis, I'm I'm certainly hoping to have an opportunity to run. I would love to be able to have this be the thing that kind of to take Trump down and to throw any of my weight behind it I could without being overtly, you know, negative towards Trump <laughs> in a weird way. Yeah, I mean, way. DeSantis is the number one biggest political beneficiary of everything that's happening right now. And um, I, I think he is the front runner for the nomination. I, I don't think front, Trump's the front runner for the nomination. And I think DeSantis has been you know, distancing himself from Trump, um, uh, you know, a bit, not on policy issues, but just, you know, on on person on, on Trump, the person um, he's really been, um, you know, DeSantis has been sort of standing for a brand of um, Trumpism on the policy level, but without all the craziness and without all the overt uh, criminality, um, but with, uh, you know, with, you know, the, the same kind of, um, you know, extremely um, populist, um, you know, um, and I would say kind of far right, um, uh, um, you know, sort of political ideas. So I, th- I think he's poised to inherit Trump's base um, to take that base away from Trump and to and to dominate um, the Republican Party politics. But I don't see that as a move back towards, you know, the, the Romney or McCain uh, type Republicans. Um, I, I just think, you know, DeSantis is much more from the Trump wing of the party than from the Romney or McCain wing of the party. What about in terms of Mike Pence? One of the arguments I made the last time we were on the show, we you know we did a little bit on January six, and I talked about how I, I saw a lot of that as being the it was the Mike pro Mike Pence show, and, and for good potential reason, right? Because of, of what he does, he's not willing to leave. That doesn't necessarily you know mean that everything he's done is hunky dory. So I'm not trying to say that, but it does give him a really positive view. As this continues to hurt Trump. He will continue to be in the news in a positive way, and he's going to continue to be the in the face of the guy who wanted to be the strong man, right? Like, I'm the big man who's going to do the great things, Trump. He's the guy who actually admittedly stands up to a bunch of violence and says, no, I'm not going to leave, and we're, you know, we're going to finish my constitutional duties. So as you go after Trump, no matter, no matter how uh, unbiased or neutral you want to be, you can't help but give uh, uh, Pence a lot of credit and therefore a lot of attention. How do you think that might interact as we move forward? I mean, obviously, DeSantis, what about for Mike Pence? You know, I, I think Mike Pence uh, conducted himself through this episode with, with courage and patriotism. Um, and it certainly, I didn't have much use for him before that, and it certainly raised his stock in, in my eyes. But I don't think there's a political constituency for him. You know, I really think... The, the 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 balance of 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 weight within the Republican Party is going to line up behind DeSantis. They really want you know that kind of belligerent populist Republican. Um, uh, there's not enough uh, Republicans who you know would w- would line up with um, Pence, I think. And yet, I don't think he really has any appeal either to um, independents or Democrats um, because he he comes so much. From the 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 kind of Christian social conservative wing of the Republican Party, which is the most anathema to Democrats and independents, I don't think there's really any way to patch patch up that th- that those differences. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I mean, as we continue to talk about uh, Supreme Court cases, that might be the case. But the other possibility, of course, is, I mean, at, at this juncture, a lot of that social conservatism that might have been a negative among some might not matter as much in some ways, right? Like, um, but maybe I'm wrong about it. Maybe, maybe we should put a pause on that before we, you know, we get to, get to some of the court cases. Anything else yeah. you think? Yeah, you know, that on we, that point, was... you know, I actually want to stick with that. You know, someone like a Liz oh, please, Cheney. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think someone like a Liz Cheney, you know, who in some ways you could look at her as being a similar figure to Pence, right? She's, she's, she was, you know, 
you know, a Republican right at the core of the Republican leadership. Um, she demonstrates, she is continuing to demonstrate, you know, just tremendous courage and patriotism through all this. And it's turned a lot of um, Republicans against her. And she's being primaried and she's probably not the favorite in her own primary. Uh, she, I think, has much more of a chance than Pence of picking up votes from Democrats and independents who appreciate what she's been doing. You know, even though you could say that they, they both conducted themselves well through the January 6th, but I think um, Pence is just still odious, too odious of a figure to, to Democrats and moderates, you know, because he was sort of the, the poster boy for, um, I'm going to go ahead and say anti-gay bigotry. Um, and, and, you know, he hasn't renounced that, you know, and, and, and things like that, um, I think just really still make him, um, yeah, a figure that can't really be accepted outside his base. Whereas, um, uh, you know, Liz Cheney was never exactly associated with that kind of thing. You know, probably the worst rap on her would have been from the democratic side would have been that she's a real war hawk. Um, and I think Democratic thinking on that has changed. You know, Democrats are, you know, probably at least as likely as Republicans to support, um, you know, military action in Ukraine and that kind of thing now. So, you know, I think being a war hawk isn't as much of a stain for, for Democrats as it used to be. And I actually do think a lot of Wyoming Democrats will vote for Liz Cheney, uh, both in her primary, which has crossover votings, and and in, and in the general, if she gets there, um, they may not even run a candidate against her. Um, and But I just don't see Pence achieving that level. Uh, the one last thing on January 6th, separate from that, is um, uh, I, I'm going to take a victory lap here and say um, you know that we all had discussions, you, me, Mike, and Jay, about whether it was better for the January 6th uh, committee to be a partisan committee or a bipartisan committee. Um, and I, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm willing to declare victory at this point and say I was obviously correct, you know, that, that this committee <laughs> is doing work that's extremely good. It's relying 100% on Republicans for witnesses. Um, and it is bringing out a lot and the stuff that it's bringing out is is pretty much true. And I think nothing like that could have possibly have happened if it had been, you know, if, if the Jim Jordans of the world had been allowed to be on this committee. Well, I mean, I always like it when we can kind of, uh, you know, lay down the gauntlet to the other hosts, potentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, in this case, I mean, that was you. That was you. Uh <laughs> Uh, I was, no, I was I all will fired say, up. You know, it was partisan, and I think you guys all thought not you as much. Really, it was really Jay and Mike Moore. I think who thought it would be it couldn't have credibility unless it was unless Kevin McCarthy picked half the members. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, I don't I don't want to toot my own horn on this one. I was just deeply undecided. I, I wasn't sure what that. Imp- I wasn't sure I could see around the corner of what that impact would be. Um, so you know, on, on that one, I think you're right. I think you kind of had Mike and Jay on one side saying, "Look, this is this is going to make it terrible." You were on the other side say this is going to make it great. And I was kind of sitting there thinking, I, I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, I'd like to say that I was, I was as brilliant as you were, but really I was just probably less decisive than the rest of the three of you. Um, but, you know, that probably just goes back to being, you know, that's the difference between being an academic and a lawyer, Ken, right? As an academic, I have to think about things for five, six, seven, eight, nine years, and then I'll... <laughs> um, but, you know, back to your point about Cheney and, you know, how she's going to compare uh, to Pence. One little thing that I have done, it, it started anecdotally, and then I've, I, I dug into the data a little bit that I think gives some credence to your idea that, that she's attractive to moderates uh, and to some Democrats. And now, of course, we can't compare this yet. But so, you know, I'm connected with a lot of individuals in, in D.C. And so there's there's one, he's a really long-time standing Democratic operative in D.C. who had uh, kind of come out among a circle of individuals that he was going to contribute a sizable fun, uh, a size of money uh, to Cheney's campaign. And I thought, you know, that's, that's, you don't see that often, right? So deep insiders don't generally give money uh, to opposition party members. And so that made me just ask the question, well, I mean, is that an anomaly or is there more to it than that? I mean, you got to be careful. Right? You're just, it's just one thing. If you take a look at her campaign donations, it does seem to be the case, if you compare it to the past, that she's getting a significant amount of more money from sources that she would not have in the past. So that seems to be something of a trend and not necessarily an isolated incident. Now, we, we, we can't compare that for Pence yet. So but it, that would be one source where we could kind of test that hypothesis. But I do think it is evidence for your thesis 
that she is appealing to moderates and Democrats. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, I didn't know the evidence, but I just I just had this sense. Um, you know, I have changed my opinion about her to such an extreme degree. You know, if she was my Republican Congress member and, you know, I've never voted for a Republican in Congress, but if she was my Republican Congress member coming up for reelection now, I'd vote for her. Uh, but I think I, I still wouldn't vote for Pence. OK, yeah. And, that, and that's always, you know, who would we we ourselves vote for now? And, you know, in full disclosure, I have actually voted for almost every party that exists uh, <laughs> at some juncture or another. But in all fairness, though, I have lived many places, <laughs> which changes things, you know, a little bit. Um, OK, so you know, what we should probably do then is uh, we should take a break. And when we come back, uh, introduce and, and chat a little bit about the Kennedy versus the Bremington School District. So we'll just take a brief time out. We'll be back in just a moment. Okay, so Ken, I thought as we kind of jump into doing court cases uh, that we'd start with the Kennedy case. But now in a large way, we don't want to miss out on something that had happened uh, today, again, Wednesday, uh, because we found out today, Breyer announced you know, that the last of the decisions are coming tomorrow, uh, Thursday, June 30th. And so as a result, that means that tomorrow, uh, Judge Jackson will be a judge on the United States Supreme Court and begin her tenure uh, uh, with the court. So this is the end of one court era uh, and the beginning of another. Now, of course, in terms of, of total vote counts and how that's going to play out, that's not going to change anything dramatically. But you never know the way individual justices rule can be surprising sometimes. Uh, I have often, historically, when you look at the big cases, you know, obviously nothing like what you, you're doing for uh, law school, Ken, but you, know, you can be surprised. You know, you know, especially I mean, if you look back and you think about like the Reagan appointees did not rule, I think, the way that most individuals thought that Reagan appointees would rule. Um, but oh, anyway, that's a, that's a rabbit hole. So, but the case we want to take a look at, uh, and this is one that just came out this week, uh, is the Kennedy case. Now, the basic facts of the case, I mean, I guess they're straightforward in one sense. They're a little bit convoluted in another. I'll run us through this since this is a, a new case. But what happens is Joseph Kennedy is fired from his job as a coach from the Birmingham School District after a protracted back and forth between himself and the district over his prayers slash motivational speeches slash, well, the issue in contention. And we'll talk more about that. Specifically, what was going on is Kennedy did two things. One, he was on the 50-yard line immediately after football games that he was coaching. And eventually, students are going to come along. And as students come along, he's going to start giving uh, religiously-themed motivational speeches while holding uh, school gear. Uh, evidence suggests that what he's kind of doing is he's holding it in the school helmet. Uh, and then before he's praying, he's kind of giving a little religious motivational speech. And then they're going to pray, and and then they're going to uh, you know exit the field. Now, that's one of the issues. Now, at the same time, though, he also took over. Apparently, there had been this longer-standing practice for there to be prayers in the actual locker rooms, and he would take over and begin leading those. Now, those are the two things going on. Then, an imposing coach who was approached about joining them on the fifty-yard line. Uh, goes to the school district and tells them in one of, I think, one of the funniest bits of a, of a court district, the testimony was this, uh, you know, that he thought it was cool that Kennedy was allowed to pray. Uh, and so the, the school district then kind of says, oh, we recognize this and determines that either it's too close for comfort or it is in fact a violation of the Establishment Clause, that is the separation of church and state. So the school district and Kennedy then have this back and forth. Now, Kennedy, in response to this, will end all of the prayers in the locker room, which as the court had already noted had predated him. And then he ended all of the religious motivational speeches at the 50-yard line. Where he ends up being unwilling to change, he seemingly will, but he won't, is, is that he says, look, I'm still going to have my short prayer at the 50-yard line uh, away from students. The district would ultimately argue, though, that this still is going to risk constitutional liability under the Established Clause for, the, for, for what they see as being public religious conduct. Kennedy argues that this private, short 30-second prayers are not government speech. They're not in, uh, uh, interfering with his duties, uh, and he's not coercing anybody into doing it. And therefore, really what this is, is a violation of both his speech and exercise rights under the First 
Amendment. The lower courts would rule at the district. The Supreme Court would ultimately, this past week, rule 6-3 to three in favor of Kennedy. Uh, Ken, so we get the first crack at this case. Well, what's your analysis? And let's start with the majority ruling. Yeah, so I, I don't like this case. I don't like this decision. There's a number of things I don't like about it. Uh, one is that the um, in this case, the Supreme Court formally overruled uh, a precedent um, for, in a case from 1971 that was called Lemon versus Kurtzman. Um, and for 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 the past 50 years, the, what's called the Lemon Test that comes from Lemon versus Kurtzman um, had been the controlling uh, – um, it had been a controlling test in religion cases. Now, conservatives tended not to like the Lemon Test. There's a lot of opinions where um, it kind of gets ignored or sidestepped, so it, it's it's been being chipped away at. Um but this is the first time there were enough votes to formally overrule it. And not to talk in jargon, the significance of that is that before this Bremerton case, um, if, if a plaintiff could show that a government action had as its principal purpose or as its primary effect the advancement of religion, uh, then that made that government action unconstitutional. Um, and now in the Bremerton case, the court overruled that old test. So so now it basically said government actions that in fact have the principal effect and primary purpose of advancing religion uh, or advancing a particular religion um, can can nonetheless uh, still be constitutional. Um, and, and the new test they sort of erected was, you know, as long as nobody's being coerced into having to participate in some kind of religious um, ceremony or ritual, um, that that's that's not theirs. So so the the government used to have to actually refrain from trying to do anything that advances religion, but now um, the the government only has to refrain from um, coercing people into uh, doing something of, of someone else's religion. So that's going to mean that there's going to be a lot more opportunities for government to engage in religious speech, religious symbolism, religious proselytizing. Um, and so I I don't think that's good. I I, I think. You know, the separation of church and state has served this country extremely well um, and that, uh, you know, kind of um, knocking down that wall um, is going to lead to religious strife. So one of the, you know, I'm familiar with Lemon. I'm glad that you explained that for listeners because, right, I mean, you know, not everybody's going to go, oh, yeah, Lemon, I know that test. Um, One of the, as I read the, the majority's opinion, one of the things that I had wondered was, I wasn't sure that even under the Lemon test that necessarily Kennedy would have been in violation of that. What do you think about that? I'd like to, I, I, yeah. to explore that question as well. Because one of the things we saw like last week with a couple of the cases was the court moved further with an overrule. As a matter of fact, you know, you know, Roberts made that specifically in the Dobbs case. Basically, look, we went further than we had to to decide the issue at hand. Uh, and, and, and so when I looked at the, fact that the facts of the case, one of the questions I had was, I thought that maybe he would still have been okay under the Lemon test, but the court then goes, you know, that step further. So what if they had not undone the, the principal holding, if not the entirety of Lemon, and, but, but still held for Kennedy? Because I, I think there is, in fact, room for that. Yeah, I think that's extremely insightful, Trey. And um, so I, here's how I'd look at that. The, the big difference between this Bremerton opinion um, and the Dobbs opinion uh, is that there's a separate um, Roberts concurrence in the Dobbs opinion, and you don't see that in the Bremerton opinion. And ultimately, sure. I, think, I, think, I think the reason for that is that the way Gorsuch wrote the Bremerton opinion, he conflated the two kinds of arguments. So, you know, there's the argument that, you know, we're not changing any tests. It's just that these facts can be construed in a way where um, this religious speaker wins. Um, and I think that's really the Roberts style argument to argue that way, you know, that we're, we're not making any big changes. We're just following the law. We're just applying the facts to this case. It just turns out that the result goes the way um, conservative politicians want it to go. Um, but that's just under all the old tests. And I think you've, you've got this other wing on the, on the, on the, on the court now that, you know, is ready to make big changes. And so I actually think Gorsuch wrote this opinion in a way that does both so that he didn't have to lose Roberts, right? That, that, that if he would have said something along the lines of, um, 
well, if we apply the lemon test, then the, this prayer at the 50-yard line is unconstitutional. So we're going to overrule lemon. You know, if, if he would have said something like that, he would have drawn a separate opinion from Roberts. And, and Roberts would have said, no, 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 you don't have to go that far. You know, this this could be reconciled with lemon. Um, so I, I think he avoided uh, that by just saying both, you know, and uh, um, the, so the, the Gorsuch opinion, because it does give what I think is a fairly tendentious reading of the facts, which um, Justice Sotomayor strongly disagrees with that reading of the facts um, in her dissent. Um, but, you know, un- under the majority's version of the facts, this this coach is just simply engaged in purely private speech, that there's there's nothing any different about what he's doing than like if a student in the school before eating lunch, you know, privately said grace to themselves in the lunchroom and then started eating, you know, some, something like that, you know, it would be unanimous that, that the student has those kind of rights. And the uh, and the and the 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 the, Gors- the the Gorsuch opinion sort of tries to paint this that way. Um I think that's an absurd reading of these facts because nobody could have been on this 50-yard line, you know, unless they're actually, you know, connected, unless they're actually a player or a coach, you know, on this football team. It's not any kind of place where, you know, okay, everyone could just be there. Um, you know, it, it's really part of the athletic program to be allowed to be on this field. And there's an audience there and it's a captive audience. And he's taking advantage of the fact that he's got this captive audience and that he's got this privileged access to the 50 yard line to 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 make, you know, part of the process of going to the football game be that you, you see it, you know, end in the prayer. And so I, I feel like that completely implicates the the use of um, his position as a as a as a coach, the school's facilities, the 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 captiveness of the audience. It, it's it's totally different in my view than the kind of fact scenario where someone who's just in school wants to privately pray by themselves. But but I do agree with your, your what you're saying, which is that the the court didn't see it as different the way I see it as different. The court saw those two distinctions as those two situations as being indistinguishable, and, and that, that this guy was doing nothing different than a student who might say grace before eating lunch. And that, therefore, even under the lemon test, that should be permissible. Well, you know, one of the things that struck me, and you were getting at it here, so we'll start there, is I think one of the reasons, you know, Sotomayor is writing the uh, the dissent. I think one of the reasons that you see the difference between Sotomayor and the majority, it's not the overt thing that they are talking about, although I think it's lingering in the background. I think it's a presupposition. And what I think that is, is the nature of prayer as a religion, you know, as a religious expression, because inherent in the Sotomayor reading is is that if you're praying, that you are doing something that is targeted externally, and in the majority's opinion, there is a supposition hanging behind it. Uh, in matter of fact, in other words, I don't think it has to do so much with the facts, but they're saying, well, prayer in in um, inexorably is not. Targeted externally, I, I honestly think there's a bit of a religious argument that's taking place here, but that's not what's coming out on the page. I was what you thought about that because again, I, I saw this in part as being individuals say, "Well, look, prayer in and of itself is an inward face." Erga, you're not like in other words, you, you know, you were, and you were, I think, summing up Sidney's point perfectly. Look, you've got yeah. this captive audience, and in other words. Are they captive? Is is the intention of that a captive audience, or is prayer? You know, which direction is it uh, facing? And and I saw that as being one of the major decisions. Again, not in the yeah. actual text, but in those yeah, presuppositions behind it. I agree that that's exactly the useful way to think about what's being argued about here. I think it's a fairly one sided argument, though. I mean, I I don't see any purpose for a coach making it known that at the end of every football game, he wants the students who want to join him to have a a public prayer on the 50-yard line while the audience is still there. I I, I see nothing about that other than that's for the benefit of the audience, right? So I I don't really see how that could be characterized as inward-looking. Like that that location, that place, that time, I can't comprehend it as being chosen for any purpose other than to inflict it on the audience. You know, they, they could they could just go right back into the locker room and do that, and we wouldn't even be having a case. Well, yeah, I don't know if they could go back into the locker room and do it. I mean, one of the reasons he does, I mean, as you look to the facts of the case, he ends doing the thing in the locker room in part because one of the things the school district is asking him to do is to remove himself from ha- from having the prayer in the mis- the immediate vicinity 
of of, uh, players so as to reduce coercion in the in the words of the district yeah. in their letter to him. So I don't I I, I, I yeah, might actually, disagree a little right bit there I because think, I don't think he could do that, right? I, I, think, I, I, think, I think that's I think, why yeah. he said no to that one. You're you're actually right. I thank you for that uh, correction. It's it's um he couldn't do that in the locker room. Any student could do that in the locker room. So yeah, he's in a yes. different he's in a different position because he's he's um you know he is the school. Right. He's in his capacity as a government official there and he's the voice of the government. But any student could do that in the locker room. And, you know, I think, you know, when he's on the clock working as a school employee in a public school, his job is not to lead students in prayer. That's that is, you know, to me, a prima facie violation of the establishment of religion clause. So then on that front, and, I, and see, I wouldn't agree there. And so that's where I end up maybe agreeing a little bit with more of the majority than I thought I would at the outset which is effectively once he backs away from the, hey, look, you're right. I shouldn't have the, the helmet. I shouldn't be giving a speech. I shouldn't be you know, encouraging any students to be here. And yeah, you're right. You know, I know we were doing this before me, but we shouldn't be doing this in the locker room. I think that gives some credence to this point of view saying, well, look, now I'm, I'm not acting as a government agent anymore. I'm just acting as a person who, who happens to also be at different moments a government agent say to that how does he get on the 50 yard line well i mean of course he's going to have a different uh, uh access than other individuals but i don't know if his location can be everything about it right because if that is the test is the majority rules then you would set up and say well look anytime you are on school grounds and you are a, a public official you can't pray now you have, I think you have a different kind of uh, First Amendment issue. I mean, no? I, I agree with you that, you know, I, I'll go back to the lunchroom example. If the teachers were eating in the faculty lunchroom and one of them wanted to say grace before lunch, I, I would completely agree they've got a First Amendment right to do that. But but I think the, the um, so it's not that no teacher or no school employee can, can pray in the school, but I think no teacher or school employee can use the leverage that they have to lead others in prayer in the school. And and I do see that that's what was happening um, in, in, in this case. So at that juncture, you think that because he's doing it in that circumstance, it has to be therefore a, a prayer being led. Yeah, I think that's why he's doing it on the 50-yard line, and I think he's only able to get on the 50-yard line to do it because he's the coach. Well, now I agree with that part of the facts, right, that only the coach could be on the 50-yard line. Uh, but likewise, though, when you're trying to think about the, the rule that then separates, so I try to think of myself, obviously I work at a private institution now, so things are different. So I'm at, uh, you know, I'm at Daytona State College again, and I'm teaching in Daytona Beach. So there's obviously locations to which I'm going to have uh, access that others don't. Um, so I mean, I mean, maybe I open myself up for a lawsuit here, but here, so be it, we'll go forward, right? So one of the things that I would do is before the beginning of semesters, I would actually go into classrooms and pray in those classrooms specifically for the students who were going to be there and for myself and what was going on. Um, before anybody else could have had access, right? So I'm doing something in a location that other people would not necessarily have access to. Uh, and I'm doing that though, in part because the location is tied up in what I'm doing and who I am. And it's also tied up in my religion. Now, obviously there's no students there at that juncture. I'm, I'm, that's yeah. part of the reason I'm doing it before the semester starts. But I would wonder though, if your test all centers around location, wouldn't that then stop that kind of potential behavior? In other words, if you say, look, if you have access to a location that others don't have access to, and you then pray, and now you violate the establishment clause, that doesn't seem like a great necessary test. And again, I think that's one of the things the majority uh, makes, uh, makes clear in their opinion as well. Again, I don't agree with all of it, but I, I found that part compelling. Yeah, I was using that issue of location as um, a fact that was relevant in this case, but not as a test. My test would be the lemon okay. test, right? The lemon test would be, does does this um, government action have the principal purpose or primary effect of advancing religion? Now, if you are alone in a room, 
you're not there's no effect of advancing religion on anyone. You're just you're just exercising your own religion. Um, you know, if you're making a spectacle of having a prayer on the 50 yard line at the end of a game when the stadium is still full and students are joining you, then I do believe the principal purpose and primary effect of doing that is to advance religion. So, you know, location does play a role, especially in judging primary effect, but it's not part of the test. The test is whether the principal purpose or primary effect of the government action is is to um, advance religion. And that was the test for 50 years until this case. Now, another piece of what the majority is going to go into, and this is going to be another piece where Sotomayor is going to explicitly disagree, and that is uh, they bring up and talk about Tinker. Now, for those uh, who aren't familiar, um, you know, Tinker is the case in Tinker de Des Moines uh, let's see, uh, uh, 69, and in 1969, arguing effectively that students in this case had the right, they were doing armbands, black armbands to protest the Vietnam War. Uh, and, and what the court would hold that would be unique is that students would be able to have, they could, they could violate potentially school policy if that policy was infringing on their free speech right. And importantly, what Tinker says is, is that uh, students and teachers, they don't shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gate. One of the questions I'm curious about, the majority basically claims as you're moving along on that lemon test, that we've chipped it away to the point where the Tinker wouldn't make sense anymore in context of the original reading of lemon. What do you, what, what's your take on that? First of all, I do think it's a bad faith argument on the part of these justices because the same justices that are in the majority in in this Bremerton case are the same justices who've taken almost every single opportunity to side with schools against students in every case that comes up under Tinker that that doesn't involve uh, religious speech. So um, to sort of pretend that Tinker gives students any significant rights under under the Supreme Court's uh, current doctrine seems to me to actually be a bad faith argument from people who know that it doesn't. Um, but if we, if we, if we would Could, construct... Wait, wait, I, I, I don't yeah. want to interrupt you all the way, but I do want to hit on that because that's, you know, it's been, I think, a year ago, and I am blanking on the case, yeah. but we actually were the two who got to take uh, care of it. The most recent ruling from the Supreme Court, in which case uh, this, most of the same uh, conservative justices were in the majority... It might have been all of them. I'd have to. I don't remember exactly the ruling uh, uh, breakdown, yeah. uh, Ken. Right. But uh, remember the, the the cheerleader. Yeah, of course. Yeah. The cheerleader well, case with the on social media flipping the bird, um, and they sided with her in that sure. case. And they was, sided with her. The most recent, and they were, and that was a tinker. It, it wasn't a tinker claim. It's the most recent case um, involving student speech, and it did side with the um, student, but on the primary ground. Um, that the speech was was not didn't take place in school and and didn't significantly affect the school. Um, they they so for speech that would take place in school or that would significantly um, affect the school, uh, the, the 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 rule that they announced would have gone the other way. So the the basic post tinker line of cases that you know anything any kind of student speech that takes place in the school building um, or even in in on a school field trip or something like that as was happened in, in one of the cases um, where they're outside the building um, uh, no students have won any cases like that since tinker and any cases that went all the way to the supreme court so it's true that a student won the most recent case but it was on the explicit ground that it, it didn't really fall within tinker at all now, this is one I don't know, and I'm just going to ask you because I'm, I'm curious about it. Maybe uh, listeners will be as well. What would be one of the more recent cases on students where they lost? Because, you know, that's not one that I'm yeah. familiar with. So I'll give you a litany. I mentioned the one that was on a field trip. The facts of this one are hilarious. Um, uh, it, it's a case called Frazier versus Morse, and it takes place in Juneau, Alaska. And the thing that's going on in Juneau, Alaska that day is that um, the Olympic torch which travels around the whole world for four years between Olympics um, is going to pass through Juno. And that's enough of a big deal in Juno that the high school kids in Juno are all go on a field trip to, you know, with the school taken there by school bus. It's the school day, but they're not in the school. They're, they're, they're lining the, the, the sidewalks of main street in Juno under the supervision of their teachers so that they can watch the Olympic torch come by. And, the Juno TV stations are out there covering it, and uh, um, there's TV cameras and this and that. And and just as the Olympic torch comes by, 
this high school student raises up a sign that he has, and it says, bong hits for Jesus. Um, and uh, and he gets oh, disciplined for it. I yeah. know that. Yeah, continue, continue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So he gets suspended from school. So he takes his case all the way to the Supreme Court on a tinker theory. Um, and he says, look, you know, we weren't in the school. Uh, we were out on Main Street. And I didn't disrupt any educational activity. It's not like the teacher was trying to teach anything. And, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not like there was a class discussion that I disrupted. We're just standing at a parade doing nothing. And, you know, nothing was disrupted by me holding up this sign. And what, what's the problem? Under tinker, I should have a First Amendment right. Um, and, you know, the conservatives on the court and only the conservatives on the court, no liberals agreed with this, um, said, uh, no, 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 you don't have a First Amendment right to do that um, because, you know, even though you weren't in the school and even though there wasn't a class going on and even though you're at a field trip basically doing nothing but watching a parade, um, the school's pedagogical mission includes um, that it generally teaches students that they shouldn't take drugs. And this sign, Bong Hits for Jesus, seems to encourage taking drugs. And so it seems to be contradictory to what the school's trying to teach. And so that undermines the pedagogical mission of the school. And so, um, you know, students' First Amendment rights don't go to interfering with the school's activities and teaching. Um, now, that's an extraordinarily stingy case, but it's just one in a line of modern cases. Again, always with conservatives pitted against liberals, um, you know, there's, you don't see mixed outcomes in these cases. Um, you know, I could tell you about some others. There was a, a, a school newspaper case. And what was the name? All I can think of it as being the bong hits for Jesus case. Yeah. And I cannot uh, think for, of its actual yeah, name. Fra Fraser, Fraser versus Morse. Um, uh, okay. For, yeah, yeah, Fraser yeah. versus okay. Morse. Yeah. There was another case a few years earlier um, where a high school newspaper, the student journalists were going to, um, they, they wanted to publish articles about um, students who got pregnant and, you know, they were going to, they were going to use pseudonyms for them, but they were interviewing students who got pregnant and, you know, some of them, you know, had the babies and some of them had abortions and some of them kept the babies and some put them up for adoption. And this was being reported, you know, in a fairly responsible way by the students. And in fact, the student newspaper had a faculty advisor who was an English teacher and he was very supportive of this and he was helping them with this. Um, and then at the last minute, the school says, um, we don't want, you know, we don't want people hearing that girls in this school are getting, um, pregnant, so we're not going to pay to pu publish this issue of the newspaper. So the students gathered up money and just published it themselves and were disseminating it in the school and uh, and got suspended for that. And once again, they did not win on a tinker claim. They lost on a tinker claim. Um, and, you know, again, that, you know, that the, 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 in this case, the school raised some privacy concerns about the privacy of the students being profiled, even though they all consented to being profiled and, and, they, and they were only being profiled pseudonymously. Um, but the court accepted that the, it was proper for the school to be concerned about those kind of issues. So, um, you know, so you see, though, there was another case, you know, I could go on about these if you're interested, but there was another case where there was a school uh, election for class president and there was a school assembly. Um, and uh, the, the student who was running for class president and who got to have a nominating speech, you know, his friend goes up there to give the nominating speech. And there's some, some I would say, fairly mild sexual double entendres in the nominating speech. You know, the, 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 the nominator yeah, the nominator says, oh, I've, I've got a friend, you know, who's firm in his beliefs. He's firm in his ideas and he's firm in his pants, you know, and stuff like that. And that's kind of the way that, you know, that kind of those kind of jokes. And there was a whole litany of them. Um, so that student got disciplined for giving that speech. And, and he takes it to the Supreme Court and says, um, you know, I, I uh, under Tinker, I should have a First Amendment right to engage in this kind of speech. This was actually, I was an invited speaker to give a nominating speech. This is political speech within the school context. I didn't even use any cuss words. Um, you know, I just made the speech funny. Um, and the, you know, again, the, the Supreme Court says, yes, but it's part of the school's pedagogical teaching mission to teach students, you know, to take politics more seriously and to use appropriate language in political speeches. So this was contrary to the teaching of, of the school and therefore can be disciplined. You know, there really has not been a case since the 60s um, where any student has won a tinker case based on speech that took place in school. Um, and that's always with a partisan divide. And, and that's why I say it's, it's a really bad faith argument for these conservatives no, now to raise that for a religious speaker and say that it's, it's a, uh, um, it, it, that it's a free speech argument. Now, a quick question though. I mean, you, we do during that period have a long period of 
liberals outweighing conservative justices. And I, I, didn't, I never thought about this, uh, you know, when I've taught or looked at this era. Uh, but wouldn't that mean that liberals had to have been not ruling in favor of students? And, I mean, it couldn't have been a perfect partisan no. design because yeah, a number perfect. of those decades you had more liberals than you have conservatives. No. No, that, that's incorrect. Um, it's it's uh, it was a perfect partisan divide, and you always had more conservatives than liberals. The, the last time there were more liberals than conservatives was right around when Tinker was decided in the mid '60s. But conservatives have had uh, a lock on the majority since Nixon was president, and all of these other cases um, were um, in the '80s and '90s and into the early 2000s. Hmm. Okay, I, I don't have any. I, I'll have to. I, I believe you, but now I have. I want to go look at like the the breakdown, but I, and I don't know that off my head, so I, I'm never going to argue where I don't know. Yeah. What I will say though is is that we have now come to the end of our uh, supported preview of the politic guys. Now we're not done, right? So Ken and I we're just getting started. As a matter of fact. We're going to get into a couple of cases uh, that Jay and Mike did. We're going to we're going to effectively have a four person show uh, delayed just by a few days, and we'd love for you to be able to join us. We're going to be talking about Dobbs. We're going to be talking about the New York gun case, and, and then we're also going to be talking about some elections and things. And we'd love for you to continue to be a part of that. But again, we're going to be ending our ad supported view right here. Uh, and so if you want to get to the rest of the show, the majority of the show, what you need to do is to become a, a supporter. So if you want to become a supporter, you can do that by heading to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can head to politicsguys.com slash support. You can also even now get us on Venmo, where we're at politicsguys. So if you want to continue the show, hear all of it, not have any ads, get some other cool things like being involved in Discord and more, all you have to do is head to patreon.com slash politicsguys or again, politicsguys.com slash support. Or if you just like, you know, tagging while you're giving money, you can always go to Venmo where we're at politicsguys.